Gracious God, we thank you for the great gift of being alive, the great gift of this study that we have been undertaking together of Paul's letter to the Romans. And we pray today that our conversation would be rich and deep and full of grace and truth. It's in Jesus's name that we pray. Amen. Romans 15, Paul writes, we who are strong ought to put up with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us must please our neighbor for the good purpose of building up the neighbor. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that by the steadfastness and by the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, so that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the circumcised on behalf of the truth of God in order that he might confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it's written, therefore, I will confess you among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. And again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse shall come, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles, and him the Gentiles shall hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I myself feel confident about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with all knowledge, able to instruct one another. Nevertheless, on some points, I've written to you rather boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to boast of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to win obedience from the Gentiles by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and as far around as Lyserium, I have fully proclaimed the good news of Christ. Thus, I make it my ambition to proclaim the good news not where Christ has already been named, so that I do not build on someone else's foundation, but as it's written, those who have never been told of him shall see, and those who have never heard of him shall understand. So I'll go ahead and pause there. Uh, at the beginning of Romans 15, Paul says that we who are strong ought to put up with the failings of the weak. Now we recall last week in Romans 14, there was a distinction between the strong and the weak. Um, the strong are those who know their freedom in Christ and who will thus eat anything and know that they are free from certain of the laws that bound Israel um, together. Whereas the weak, for instance, will only eat vegetables and will avoid certain foods in order to uh, obey the 
the ritual teachings of Leviticus. Uh, And here Paul is identifying with the strong as someone who knows his freedom in Christ and says that the goal of being amongst the strong is not to please ourselves, but rather to please our neighbor, to build up our neighbor. And so in identifying with the strong, you know, that can sound kind of arrogant on the surface, but of course the, the great twist in Pauline theology uh, if we go to Philippians 2, is that true strength is always displayed in uh, what the Greeks called kenosis or self-emptying, um, in the same way that though in the form of God, Jesus emptied himself and took the form of a servant, that was not because Jesus was weak, but rather uh, it displayed his strength. And though to, so to be strong in one's faith, that strength is displayed in a capacity to serve and please our neighbor and to build up our neighbor. And so if you want a little bit of a a litmus test of how strong your faith is, I think Romans 15 gives that to you, that um, the strong amongst us are always increasing our capacity to build up and to edify our neighbor and to build up the body of Christ. And of course, this is tied to the ultimate goal for the church in verse six, so that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, You know, Jesus says something similar in the gospel of John that we will know, um, that, that the world will know that we are his disciples by the quality of our love for one another. I think Paul is saying something similar, that we are to glorify God with one voice. But remember what he said last week when he said, welcome one another, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. And Paul said, let each be convinced in his own mind. And he said, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so in Romans 14, Paul gives us a template for holding different perspectives and opinions inside the church. And so one of the things that he has already done is basically ruled out the possibility that unity and unanimity or that unity and uniformity are the same things because in the body of Christ, they're not. And so to glorify God with one voice and Pauline thought is not to have the same perspective on every issue. It's not to make sure that we, you know, agree on the fine print of how to live out every aspect of the Christian life, but rather that with one voice, we understand that we worship a Lord who, as it says in verse two, did not please himself, but died to build up the church. That is our voice. We die to self. We die to our own interests. We die to our own um, things that we cling to uh, in order to build up others in the church so that we can, with one voice, glorify God. And so whenever Paul says verse seven, therefore, welcome one another. Um, And you can place the therefore anywhere in the translation. Therefore, right? Therefore, your mission is to glorify God with one voice. Therefore, welcome one another, just as Christ has welcomed you. And it's not that we're to welcome one another. It's that we're to welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed us. And we recall something interesting Paul says back in Romans 5, where he says, 
while we were enemies, Christ died for us. He says, you know, rarely will someone even die for a good person, though perhaps for a good person, someone actually might dare to die. But while we were enemies, Christ died for us. So that is the picture of how Christ has welcomed us. Christ has died, uh, sacrificed his own life for his enemies. And so when Paul says, welcome one another, just as Christ has welcomed you, kind of the implicit assumption is that we will do the same for those within the church, um, that, that everyone will be our neighbor, that we will go to the cross, metaphorically speaking, for our enemies, just as our Lord has done that for us. Um, and then we're told why Christ did this, verse 8, to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. I think it's good from time to time to be reminded of some of Paul's concerns in writing this letter. And one of those concerns is the charge, has the word of God failed? Has God kept his promise? Is God righteous? Remember that word righteous means faithful to the covenant. And again, the reason some were saying that maybe God has not been faithful to the covenant is because you have all these Gentiles who are in the church, maybe more Gentiles than uh, people of Israel. And you have a Messiah who has died on a cross. And so people are asking, what's the deal? Has God kept his promise? And the whole point is that, yes, Christ has kept his promise through the most wonderful and surprising of ways, that not through the nation of Israel, but through the true representative of Israel, the true son of David, has faithfully kept the law, has faithfully obeyed God, has faithfully taken on all the consequences of sin and rebellion, um, and that we are united with him and in him. Um, and so whenever Paul says that the promises given to the patriarchs are confirmed, he's really just reinforcing one of the main themes of this letter. And when he says that the Gentiles are here to glorify God for his mercy, he's wrapping up some things that he said in Romans 9 through 11, where he went on that long, not a tangent, but that long discussion over kind of how uh, the hardening of Israel has welcomed in the Gentiles. And so how does Paul sum this up in verse 13, but with a wonderful benediction. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you ever ask yourself, what's the whole point of Romans? You know, where does the rubber meet the road? What is my life supposed to look like if I internalize this message? I think verse 13 is a good place to start, that you are to be filled with joy and peace and hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, one little note that I missed in verse five, where Paul says, may the God of steadfastness, that Greek word means patient endurance. Um, it's, it's a word that is often used in the New Testament to describe our posture, what it means to be a disciple. It's about patient endurance. It's about waiting but I like to point this verse out because here that virtue is ascribed to God, right? That God is the one who is ultimately long-suffering, um, patiently enduring 
with the objects of his creation uh, as he works out their salvation. And so the steadfastness that we are called to exercise in our faith is ultimately a reflection of the goodness of God himself. One last note before we go into discussion, I find this to be a very interesting verse, actually two notes. One is in verse 14, where Paul says, I feel confident, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness. I just love that verse because how often do we say that about other people? Think about people in your life who cause you grief, people in your life who you find irritating or wish you could straighten out. Um, Are you confident that they are full of goodness, that at their core, that they are filled with the goodness of God? And I think that as Christians, regardless of what we see on the outside of people's behavior, that we are to attribute the same goodness to uh, everyone with whom we are in relationship. But then in verse 16, uh, Paul compares himself to a priest. He says that he is a minister of Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of God so that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable. I just think this is a beautiful image where a priest is someone who offers things to God uh, in order for them to be sanctified. And so as an Episcopal priest, I stand at the altar and I offer uh, the elements of bread and wine to God um, and praying that through the power of the Holy Spirit and the gathered community that they will be sanctified by the Spirit and to become the body and blood of Christ. Uh, And so here, the offering, you know, Paul's the priest, and the offering um, are the Gentiles. And I just think it's a beautiful image because the priestly language runs pretty subtly, but consistently throughout Romans. Uh, In Romans chapter 12, when Paul says, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Uh, Here, Paul is calling everybody to be a priest but the offering is ourself. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice. And so, you know, one of the things that we can talk about is what does it mean uh, to be a priest? Uh, In the the Episcopal Church, we have ordained priests, uh, and I'm an ordained priest, and so I have a very particular ministry that lay people do not have. But we also believe in the priesthood of all believers, and we actually use that language in our baptismal covenant. And so what does it mean to offer our lives, to offer our work, to offer ourselves to God um, so that God might sanctify it by the Holy Spirit? Because ultimately, that is what Paul is after. He wants the Jews and the Gentiles and all their friction, all their tension, all their misunderstanding to come together with one voice and to offer themselves as priests to God so that God can take that offering and bless the whole world. Final note, verse 20, Paul makes it his ambition to proclaim the good news, not where Christ has already been named, but in places others have not been. Functionally speaking, that's an important verse because Paul's about to do some fundraising and he's going to go on to Spain and ask for some money. But the other thing I just want to say is Paul uses that word ambition, that word we tend to frown on uh, in in today's world. And I just like to remind people that ambition is good. You know, it's just a matter of, you know, ambition does not have to be in service to one's ego. 
Ambition does not have to be about the accumulation of wealth or status. That ambition can be for God's work to move forward. And I think one of the things that often happens when we read Romans over and over is that we catch some of that ambition for God. And so one of the things I'm going to be curious to hear about from you is, you know, is there such a thing as godly ambition for God's work to move forward? And how do we, how do we differentiate that from the more selfish, dark ambition that often kind of runs other people over? So I'm going to go ahead and stop there and we'll see what thoughts y'all have about uh, this first section of Romans 15. We will pick up with verse 22. This is the reason that I've so often been hindered from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, I desire, as I have for many years, to come to you when I go to Spain. For I do hope to see you on my journey and to be sent on by you once I've enjoyed your company for a little while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem in a ministry to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to share their resources with the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do this, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material things. So when I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will set out by way of Spain to you. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in earnest prayer to God on my behalf, that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my ministry to Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. The God of peace be with all of you. Amen. All right, so just a, a few quick little notes here. Um, remember, Paul has never met the Christians um, in Rome. This is not a church that Paul founded like Corinth or the church of Galatia, but rather um, this is a church that has formed through the ministry of a different apostle filled with Jews and Gentiles. Uh, they have a good reputation, and Paul is writing to them this very thoughtful letter, but the question is why? And it kind of has a practical purpose. Paul, the missionary, wants to go on to Spain, but he wants to stop in Rome on his way to Spain to be refreshed, uh, to meet the church here, but also to be supported on his missionary journey. Uh, remember, Paul was a tent maker, um, and he kind of traveled from place to place, but generosity and having these missions supported you know, someone had to support them. And so in verse 26, he references Macedonia and Acacia who have given to the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. These are predominantly Gentile churches who are helping to assist the poor in Jerusalem, uh, most of whom are probably Jewish or Jewish Christians. And Paul says they were pleased to do this, and indeed they owe it to them, for if the Gentiles have come to share in the spiritual blessings of Israel, they also ought to be of service in material things. Um, but whenever Paul says they owe it to them, right, the Gentile Christians owe them this offering, this money, this assistance. Remember in Paul's letter to the Romans, 
all the nuances around words like owe and debtor and freedom. Um, in a previous chapter, Paul said, owe no one anything except to love one another. And so here, clearly what Paul is suggesting is that a very clear demonstration of love, if all we owe is love, then we owe our resources to others to build up the body of Christ. And so this is where people's uh, cynicism often gets triggered because Paul is raising money to go to Spain. He is talking about the other fundraising happening where uh, these other Christians are assisting out the poor in Jerusalem. Um, but essentially, Paul here is basically saying that one clear aspect of love is generosity and supporting the mission of the church. Uh, we had a great conversation about this in our Tuesday study. And just to kind of give you the cliff notes of that, in our culture, where we're so used to being asked for money, we're so skeptical of people who ask for money. We often see money misused, especially by religious figures. It's a sensitive thing. You know, I think in Paul's culture, this would have been received a little differently. Uh, it was an honor to be asked to participate in the mission of Christ, that Paul is uh, not squeamish uh, about asking for this money, but believes uh, that he is offering people a privilege in supporting the mission of the church, uh, and he speaks of it as such. Um, and so that is one of the practical things happening in Romans, that Paul's going to Rome on his way to Spain, and when he says, in verse 29, I'm going to come to you in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I think part of the subtext there is you're going to be ready to support the mission. And if you think about why Paul has written so extensively about what his gospel is and about what he believes, is because Paul does want to be sent on by the church at Rome to go to Spain to preach the gospel. And he really has to establish himself and say, this is who I am. This is what I believe. This is what I think God is doing. And I really want you to be a part of that. Now, by the time we get to chapter 16 next week, it's going to be very clear. Paul already has a lot of connections to the church at Rome, um, meaning that Paul is not, you know, making a cold call here. You know, Paul is a known figure and he has relationships uh, with the people in Rome, um, but that is part of the intent of the letter. One final note, he asked for prayer that he would be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea. Just uh, uh, something to remember is that Paul used to be one of those unbelievers in Judea. Uh, he himself says that he persecuted the church of God, and in verse, uh, I'm sorry, in Acts of the Apostles, he is found at the stoning of Stephen. And so, uh, whenever Paul says, pray that I may be rescued from unbelievers in Judea, he's probably not talking about Roman officials, but about his own people, uh, according uh, to the flesh of Israel, who um, might be suspicious of this new movement proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. And then finally, he ends with the benediction, the God of peace be with all of you. Amen.